You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. There are so many things that suck about the beach. Sand that sticks all over you, the feeling of salt water up your nose and in your ears, sunburn, the incredible terror of the open ocean. But still, so many of my fondest memories take place on the shores of beaches. Jumping over waves with my little brother, building sandcastles with my dad and watching them wash away, searching for the prettiest shells with my mom, drinking beers with my friends, listening to the waves crash in and watching the current pull them back out. Despite the inconvenience of sand, the beach is a place I go with the people I love to be together in nature without having to say a thing. In this episode, we have stories of people returning to shorelines, to be with each other and to learn from each other. Gus Fitzgerald has spent a life in the ocean, a surfer and swimmer and commercial diver who was introduced to the water by his father, the late Tony Fitzgerald. In our first story, Gus is thrown under by the surf and makes his way back to shore with the help of his father. A content warning, this story contains swears and references to suicide. If you're in need of support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. I'm going to break you. (laughs) Through very narrowed eyes, my dad used to say that to me before we played table tennis. (laughs) So, I'll serve. My dad was many things to many different people. One of which was a lifesaver, surf lifesaver. And at 10 years of age, he actually made me save myself. We were on the central coast of New South Wales in Hawke's Nest and it was very rough dangerous wild surf and I was about 50 meters out as a 10 year old kid and I got swept about six or seven hundred meters down the beach and my dad just calmly followed walking down the beach watching and every time I looked back he was there and then I worked out he's not going to save me (laughs) I've got to do this and so I worked out somehow managed to catch a couple of waves And I washed in on the beach and I remember sort of arriving at his feet and looking up at him and just going, and he just said, all right, that was pretty hairy. Um, I think we've had enough for the day. We can leave. No worries. Tony Fitzgerald was a social justice activist. He was a human rights uh, champion. He was a lawyer, an environmentalist, an athlete. He was a teacher. He was my dad. He was a brave and courageous man under fire. He was a very gentle and sensitive man. But at the same time, he was a very hard and unrelentingly masochistic human being. (laughs) He would go into battle for anyone, literally. In the street, he would confront police that were harassing Aboriginal people and profess, that's my client, what are you doing to them? Even though it was not their client. Uh, One time, when I was a kid, about 12 or 13, he 
threatened my best friend Anthony with, and I with cross-examination. He found out we were sort of doing something on the edge of the law. And he said in front of Anthony's parents, one of whom was a lawyer, I will cross-examine you. I will extract the information from you. I have that power. Do you want this to happen? And, and Anthony's mum sort of looked at him and said, Jesus, Fitzy, that's pretty extreme. They're 12. And we straight away went, yeah, 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 we were lighting fires in prep school. Sorry. No worries. He's a gladiator, mentally and physically. He was a, uh, he feared no opponent at all. Like, yeah, he just didn't. If you think you're an alpha male, forget it. You don't have the resolve. Like, um, I think people were genuinely scared of him, some people. They saw someone be so genuinely hard on themselves, they thought, fuck, how hard is it going to be on me? But we were, a, we were a formidable duo, you know. We were like Angelo Dundee and Muhammad Ali, except Dad was champion and coach and I was apprentice. When I was six years old, uh, my dad got thyroid cancer and we went to Royal North Shore Hospital and we had surgery. And I didn't really understand what was happening, but I knew he was weakened when I first saw him. He had... He was walking around with these two bags, IV drips and tubes coming out of him. And I could just tell there was something wrong. And after that, he went into this very, very supremely extreme form of rehab, which was one of the things was to swim in Lake Alexander three laps. And so he'd had his neck chopped. And he said, oh, they've cut into me, Gus. And he had his neck chopped. He had this big scar and all his muscle wastage. And he started swimming in these big arcs in Lake Alexander because he had one side weaker than the other. And he remember him saying to me, no matter how much it hurts, I never stop, never, until I finish the three laps. Pain is just weakness leaving my body. He was a militant man. He then detoxed our whole family. <laughs> we weren't allowed to have processed foods. We had red vegetable juice in the morning, green vegetable juice at night from six years old. <laughs> and so the sort of the sexing up of the health food industry just doesn't really cut it after that, you know? Like, um, he meditated daily, morning and night. His pursuit of calm was another exercise of militancy. Work that out. He was a fully armoured knight. He'd built himself back to that so that he could go back into battle with himself. I loved and revered him, but I was afraid of him. I did what I thought he wanted me to do out of fear of disappointment. He played rugby. He loved rugby more than oxygen. I played rugby. I was terrified of rugby. <laughs> Tackling, committing to stopping someone who is like a freight train, breathing steam. And you've got to stop that. It's a scary thing. But as he would say, it's electric when you do it. <laughs> but I was never as afraid 
as I was of that, as I was of not making him happy. As a boy, I could sense there was some sort of sadness, a loneliness, I think, about being a single dad, being sick, my mum not loving him anymore. I tried to protect him from that. I thought if I could just make this man happy, somehow, somehow he'll live forever. In 2006, we went to Vietnam and his cancer had come back really strongly. Um, we were in Halong Bay on these houseboats and we dived off the boat into this green water. And I popped up next to Dad and he popped up and I just saw this look of terror on his face and he said, Gus, fuck, Gus, you really got to help me. I was sort of like, yeah, okay, Dad, you can swim. And he said, no, seriously, seriously, I'm going under. You, I, I'm too weak, you got to help me. And so I swam to him and then suddenly I had to employ all the skills that he taught me to save myself to use against him. And I swam him to the anchor line of the boat and held him there. And he was holding the anchor and he was just infuriated by this, like infuriated about his weakness. And he said, how's the irony of that? A lifesaver and I can't even fucking swim. <laughs> A few years later, it was 2009 and February 20 to be exact, and the Chiefs were playing our beloved Waratahs in the Super Rugby. And... Dad and I sat, it was pandemonium at our house, there were people everywhere and it was sticky February day and Dad and I sat on the couch and I was sitting next to a skeleton of a man and we watched the last game of rugby we would ever watch together. But for 80 minutes we were just cocooned in this impenetrable little fortress in silence. No one came near us. Nothing came in. We didn't even talk. We just looked at each other every now and then. And it was like he was just passing me little messages, just shedding his armour slowly. But he didn't. He hung on to it. And then after the game, I had to help him. I had to help him get up. And I then started sort of, you know, helping him walk a bit. And he said, you've got to carry me. And I sort of, again, I was a bit shocked. I was like, yeah, right, like you can walk. And he says, you've got to fucking carry me. I can't walk. I've got no strength. Have a look at me. And I had to carry him. I lifted him up and carried him to his bed. And he never left his bed after that. And then after he died a few days later, I remember saying to a very good friend of mine, I'm not scared of anything anymore. And I think that was the 19 and bulletproof boy's ideal about the world and being destructive and thinking I can throw myself in front of anything just to prove my strength. But I couldn't. And I came to realise that what had actually happened is now I'd had nothing to live for. I couldn't pull off the impossible. I couldn't make this man happy. He didn't live. He was now dead and I failed. And I was scared that I would never meet his unattainable standards, his unattainable standards. I just thought I would never make it. And just like him, I was terrified. I was in fear of myself. 
more than anything. And suddenly I was that boy again, floating out to sea, getting dragged down the beach. And every time I looked back at, this, at the beach, it was empty. There was no lifesaver there anymore. And so I gave up, fully gave up. And the fear engulfed me. And I started drowning in a very toxic sea of drugs and alcohol for a very long time. I attempted suicide twice. And how the fuck do you stay afloat with circumstances like that? I miss my dad. I miss his kindness and his knowledge and his wisdom. I miss my mate. And I miss him because he taught me to swim. <laughs> he taught me to swim through wild surf and very turbulent times in my life. And I can't thank him enough every time I get in the water. But the main thing I've learned about all of this is sometimes it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let go. It's okay to give up control. You know, we attach this stigma in our, st stigma in our society of weakness to vulnerability. But I think really, if you're vulnerable, it can be one of your greatest strengths. And just like that 10-year-old boy in the ocean, you can't fight the power of the surf. You can't hold back the waves. But you've got to turn and face them. And if you swim with them, eventually you'll make it back to shore. And that's the only way to truly free yourself of your fears. Thank you. That story was told by Gus Fitzgerald. It was produced by Sam Comedy. Gus told this story at Spun, a live storytelling night presented by Story Projects in the Northern Territory. You can subscribe to the Spun Stories podcast and find out more about the Spun Storytelling Project by visiting spunstories.net. You can also look for Spun Stories on Facebook and Twitter. If you need support after listening to this story, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. All the Best is a place for storytellers to learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you'd like to produce a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. For thousands of years before colonisation, the people on this continent already interacted with the world beyond our shores. In our next story, Bridget Chappelle speaks to Yongu cultural leader Timmy Barawanga of Yikula about the history of Makassan sailors from Sulawesi, Indonesia, travelling yearly to northeast Arnhem Land.
The root of this history lies in Bariba, or sea cucumber, also known as tripang, which drew visitors known in Yungu as Mangafara to northern Australia to harvest for sale on the international market, specifically the Chinese market. Macassans arrived each year with the monsoon and stayed for months, working alongside Yungu in their shared industry. But this history encompasses much more than trade. It represents the arrival of Islam on this continent long before Christianity and a history of mutual exchange and agency. It also poses a powerful counterpoint to the colonial pearl and pearl shell trade notorious for its enslavement of Indigenous people across northern Australia. Where I come from, Boca, it's name come from Makassin. What does Bawaka mean in Makassin? Unknown heaven. I was lucky to interview younger cultural leader Timmy Burarwanga in Yirukala to learn about this history. Timmy's own family history is interwoven with the Makassins. His elders have passed down these histories through the generations. Here he sings part of the songline Gapala Bawaka that joins Arnhem Land to Makassar. It's a so long story. Now it's like our song lines right across from the Arnhem Land to the Indonesia to Makassar. What's your family connection to the Makassans? My grand grandmothers and grandfathers tell me stories about Makassan. We have very strong connections. And it's written written by thousands of years. Like it's it's been used song in the song lines and in the arts and also in the um in the language. There's lots of words, there's thousands of words of Makassan's languages right across in Arnhem Land. We, we have adopted our languages between Makassar and Yungo people in thousands of years, like Rupia. Rupia is the money. The impact of Makassaris on the language of Yungo Mata is indeed profound. Yungo words of Makassan origin appear everywhere. Verbs like work, buy, build, count and dive. Nouns like medicine, salt, dog, and radiance. Adjectives like greedy, naked, sour, and fragrant. Some of the words heralded the arrival of new concepts, like balanda, which means white person. Some represent new additions to something, including extensive vocabulary relating to boats and sailing. Some words took their place as synonyms alongside words already used in Yungumata, like manangan, the Yungumata word for thief, now joined by... Baluka, Makassaris for robber. The adoption of loanwords for such everyday concepts that Yungomata already has its own words for points to just how interwoven the lives were of the people speaking these languages. Makassans themselves knew Arnhem Land as Marage, and further west along the coast, the area colonially known as the Kimberley was called Kayujawa. All along these coastlines, we find other impacts of the Makassans, like the Woodwoodwoy stone arrangement they built at Yurikala, and other things. They left what we call jambang. Jambang is a tamarind tree. And in the coastlines in Arnhem Land, the tamarind trees are some sort of a special plant that planted by the Makassians right across. And it is saying that Makassian people were here in the thousands of years. And that's like unique to Aboriginal people, or Yolngu people right across. You know, they they came through, I uh, was in Australia and Cape York, and they went all over the places. Do you still collect trupang now? We don't collect trupang now, but um, tribes now painting 
through pangs, we also respect that the animal. You know, it's, it's a sea cucumber, and um, we call it taripa. We respect it, and we also um, a lot of people that put it in the art and paint it, and the stories be told by the elders. They were they were collecting a lot of a um, lot of things like pearls and um, shells because they see you know people were collecting it, and because of Macassan saw that, and then they started collecting. So there was a like knowledge between Macassan people and Yolo people. But as Timmy says, it wasn't the Macassan's only harvest. Pearl and pearl shell fetched good prices in foreign markets as well. This adjacent industry poses a comparison between Macassan pearling and the colonial pearling exploits that would follow. When Prime Minister Scott Morrison claimed recently that slavery never existed here, it prompted the online sharing of confronting photos of the reality of slavery in this country, many of them taken from archives of the colonial pearling industry of the top end. Slavery may have been abolished in the British Empire on paper, but it was a mainstay of the colonial pearl industry. It included both Indigenous Australians and also Macassan and other Southeast Asian people kidnapped from their own vessels and forced to work in the colonial parallels of their own industries. After that, after collecting, they used to sit around and, you know, sing a songs while they're cooking, sing a songs about when they harvesting. And today, we always sing that songs, especially the land, the sea, the creatures inside the, the sea. So it's a, it's a very unique and uh, very important for, for young people. How did the Macassans practice religion when they came to Yungo country? There were there were some of the religions um, to adopted by the Macassans because Macassans were the uh, Muslims. There were there were something that was shared in those times, and uh, because of those times, Yungo people didn't know understanding about what the religion was, you know. But there was a, like ceremonies and a law. Song lines and dance, and you know, and then there was a there was a show that was adopted by Macassans. It was a, a exchange knowledge, you know. They gave us knives or ikki, you know, steels that younger people right across were using those steels, very sacred and very value to the tribes. Dancing with the flags and and knives, all those things that happening today is comes from the Macassans. The Macassans established semi-permanent settlements across northern Australia, building houses to live in, smoke houses to cure chupang in, and mosques to pray in. Imams accompanied Macassan fleets, and Islamic knowledge was exchanged with Yungu knowledge. The Yungu Macassan history represents a rich side of intersecting knowledge systems. It encompasses the knowledge productions of Persian and Arab geographers who mapped Australia's northern coastlines in the 9th and 10th centuries. Muhammad al-Khwarizmi, also known as the inventor of algebra, mapped Cape York Peninsula, the Gulf of Carpentaria, and Arnhem Land in the year 820. In its margins, he has written, This map shows a large area of the land surrounded by dark, stormy seas. You don't know its beginning from its end. The Macassans and their boats are the subject of Indigenous rock art across northern Australia, from the Kimberley to Queensland, with contemporary Indigenous artists also celebrating the history on canvas and bark. Songs in the Yungo Manakai tradition are sung about the Macassans and other Muslim visitors from across the Arafura Sea. Contemporary Yungo musicians sing about it too, 
such as Yunupingu's Japana, Sunset Dreaming, and Soft Sands' Jiliwiri. In 1997, the huge production of Tripang, an indigenous opera, was performed in both Makassar and Darwin to packed audiences. The cast of over 100 Yungu and Indonesian performers explored the history through the allegory of first contact, in this case between a Yungu girl and a Makassan sailor. Indonesian academics and religious organisations have published extensively on the topic, and Makassari's folk songs tell of these epic voyages to the Marage. The history is known and celebrated too in the sea cucumbers' final destination, China, where it was the subject of a 2011 exhibition at the Capitol Museum in Beijing. Meanwhile, in 2019, Muslims from Western Sydney produced the feature-length documentary Before 1770 about the history, commissioning and sailing a purpose-made Makassan boat from Sulawesi to Arnhem Land. The strangest thing about this incredible history is that despite the wealth of knowledge and resources out there, it remains so little known and so uncelebrated in settler Australia. The mainstream Australian history of Islam here is, of course, so different. The anti-asylum seeker policies that have defined our era since John Howard's terms as Prime Minister, the invasions and continued occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, and the vilification of Australia's Muslim communities by right-wing politicians and their supporters. In 1988, Australia celebrated its so-called bicentenary, representing 200 years since the landing of the First Fleet. The reenactment of the landing in Sydney was met by over 40,000 protesters. Meanwhile, up north, a traditional Makassan Prahu boat named Hati Marge landed in Arnhem Land, reenacting its own history. Its captain was Mastrod Mohayang, whose late father had been the last surviving crewman on a Tripang voyage in 1906. So, what caused the downturn in this ancient relationship? One of the first enforcements of modern Australian border control. In 1884, the first customs tax was imposed on Tripang vessels. Fees and duties were raised each year until finally achieving their goal in 1906. The Muslim Kamaliyas of Central Australia, without whom so much of the colony would have remained impassable, were undergoing their own parallel version of bureaucratic violence. It could be read as Australia's first instance of modern border control and the first chapter in its long colonial history of Islamophobia. The first official incarnation of the White Australia policy in 1901 saw the departure of hundreds of Indonesians living and working here. Recent decades have seen new possibilities for Yungu and Makassans to reconnect, with collaborations such as the Tripang Opera, which was developed in Makassar. It represented another aspect of the older histories of some Yungu travelling back to Makassar at the end of the Tripang season, some of them staying there and marrying into Makassan families. Yeah, it was, yes, there was a lot of people went back Makassar and so my grand-grand-grandmother, she went and stayed there for many of years and had a kids and a, and a family. There was exchange marriages in those times. It was sort of, you know, culture and in this culture was the, um, the relationship between Yulmer and Makassar was really strong. It's like a family, you know, people were living sharing food, working together. It was that economy, bringing that new economy, and also the family structures. We always talk about that every day, like when we're sitting around campfires, 
We always talk about my cousins. We always talk about this history of family. So for for us, it's really powerful. So we need to we need to adopt this education and to give this to non-Aboriginal people or in the curriculum that talks about the history about you know first connections with Macassans. You know, and we need to we need to educate that because that story is deep knowledge and it's we want to celebrate just like people that in this country celebrate you know um, January the 25th. We want to celebrate something that is what's special to Aboriginal people and to the um, the first people that connected to Aboriginal people. And I think that's a very unique and appropriate way of doing it. This is what I always think about it. All the people that is believe that they were here and there was, you know, peace. This project was made on the unceded lands of the Yungu people and of the Lache Lache and Nyeri Nyeri people. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. That story was produced by Bridget Chappelle. The supervising producer was Mel Chun. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. All the best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIN and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Ryan Pemberton. Mel Chun is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinators are Chloe Gillespie and Danny Stewart. Our SIN community coordinator is Lee Robinson. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening.